Amen. So we'll be wrapping up Philippians chapter four today. So if you have your Bible, you can go there. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I kind of grew up here. I grew up in San Diego up until I was about to go into high school. And then I went to Hidden Valley. We moved up here, went to Hidden Valley. It was here that I learned how to drive. It was here that I had my first car. And it was really important to my grandpa that all of his grandkids learn how to drive on the same car. I don't know why that was important, but it was very important to him. And this car just so happened to be as a 1960s Ford Falcon. All right. Part of the deal was anything that went wrong with it, the grandkid who was learning had to repair whatever went wrong with that car. Well, if you know Fords, it's fix or replace daily. So that came up often. And in a 1960s vehicle, like a lot of you know, when you're driving, even on a smooth surface, it kind of does this, you know, like there's a lot of shaking, you know, because there's not good stabilizers, there's not good shocks in it. And it, it, you're just kind of, it's kind of doing this the whole way. kind of hurts your eyes, you know, because everything is so crazy. I remember we were driving one time. My grandpa's in the passenger seat. I'm telling him, grandpa, my eyes hurt. And he says, you're fine. Keep driving. And I go, no, my eyes really hurt. And I look at the dashboard and I see flickering lights behind the, the dash. My, the car was on fire. <laughs> All right. And it was the smoke that was hurting my eyes. So that, that was the first car that I ever learned how to drive on. It's kind of like, um, if, I don't know if you know this, but when we visit my family, you can go to the Medford airport and get 50 to $70 tickets, one-way flights to San Diego, but they put you on these little jumper planes, right? They can fit 10 people, single row. They don't have a bathroom in the back. They have a tiny little chapel because when you hit turbulence, you're going to meet God on that trip, right? Like you're, you're going to find a good place to pray. So those are the flights that they said, and every thing you hit, it's like the same thing. It's this white knuckle experience, this, like, oh my gosh, you feel everything. But when I took a group of kids to Kenya, they put you on this really big plane. Like it was like four school buses strapped together that big. And you feel fine. It doesn't matter what turbulence you hit. It doesn't matter what's going on outside. We could have been landed the entire time and they would have just said, oh, you're in Kenya now. We would have believed them because it was so smooth because there's nowhere to put that down, right? They're, they're getting to their destination. It's smooth. They're, it's got really good internal stabilizers. Now, the car I drive now is not a 1960 Ford Falcon. It's a truck that I'm really excited about, 2010. And man, I could hit a small animal. I wouldn't even notice, you know, it's just right over it. But you and I know that the more rocky or uncertain or turbulent the environment is, the more important it is to have really strong stabilizers. Otherwise, you feel everything. You feel every single rock. You feel every single bump in a really, really old car, something that you might not feel in a newer car. You feel every single change of direction on a plane. You feel every drop, every shift in a small airplane, but not so much in a larger airplane where they have better stabilization, better shock support. In that same way, you and I need internal stabilizers when our environments get really rocky, get really crazy. And I would argue that our environment is getting increasingly uncertain, turbulent, a little bit crazy. I mean, if you think about older, older civilizations, ancient groups of people, the people that they grew up around were all the people they were ever going to know in their entire life. 
You had a very firm sense of community and this is who we are. Your dad's job was the only job he was ever gonna have and it defined him. He's a farmer, he's a carpenter. This is what he, he's a doctor. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is who we are. He's just very firm. This is what a community looks like. This is what a family looks like. This is what our family looks like. A very strong sense of that. And it's not that way today. You know, you have employers who are not loyal to employees, employees who are not loyal to employers. You have people moving all over the place. You, you never know who your neighbors are. And right now, we don't even know, like, what does school look like for our kids? This is the first time ever, you're just like, I don't know that. And is it going to be consistent? I'm not sure. When you go into a store, what are they going to ask you to do? You don't know. We are in an environment that's increasingly seemingly uncertain and unstable. And in those moments, you need really strong stabilizers. And Paul, he ends the book of Philippians, I believe, giving you his stabilizers. And if you know Paul, Paul is a man who has been through stuff. Paul is like, if you ever go to the Oregon coast and you see the big rocks that have been in the water since the earth was formed, right? And they're just being hit day after day with these giant waves. Some ones, they just get so smashed that you would think a normal, a person who was in, the, in that wave would have been crushed. But then the wave recedes and the rock is still there. Paul is like that. He takes beating after beating, wave after wave, and he still continues. He still persists. He still, sorry, it was getting away from me. He's still joyful, full of joy to encourage and lift up others. Paul's got some internal stabilization. He's been beaten, put on trial. He's been shipwrecked. He's had been put in prison. He's had multiple bad, 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 bad. Yeah, he's so full of joy. He's got real strong internal stabilization. He's got that to offer for you and for me tonight. And that's what I believe he ends chapter four with. So if you have your Bible... If you want that, is what we're going to look at tonight. So chapter four starts with a word, therefore. And one of my favorite Bible teachers has this corny thing that he says that you may have heard. If you ever start a Bible study and it says, therefore, you need to go back and see what it's there for. So go back just a little bit to chapter three, verse 20, to get the full context. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he starts by saying, this is how you stand firm. You remember your citizenship is in heaven. You remember your name is written down in the book of life. This is the way I describe it to high schoolers. I got to teach them a few weeks ago. My first job ever was at Dairy Queen on the north end of town. If you've ever been to Dairy Queen on the north end of town, close to closing time, we have a different clientele. They could be a little more aggressive, at least back when I worked there. And let's just imagine that my buddy and I, we get hired at the same time. And the CEO of Dairy Queen tells me, but not my friend, if you can last 10 years, I'll give you a $100 million check at the end of your time here. 
well, which one of us is gonna be able to more happily put up with some of the more harder people? Who, which, who's gonna be more easily convinced to come in early and to stay late? Who's gonna be more excited to deal with some of the harder things? The dude with the $100 million check coming. What Paul is saying is you and I, we've been adopted into God's family. We have an inheritance that we have more to look forward to than anything in this world combined could ever begin to emulate or to copy, that we need to remember the thing that can help us stand firm. We need to remember our citizenship is not in this world. Our hope is not in this world. Our joy, our peace, the things that we derive happiness from don't come from here, but they come from what's coming for us. Then that perspective, if you actually held on to that perspective, wouldn't that change the way you deal with circumstances in your life? Wouldn't that change maybe the way that you deal with frustration with your kids or the way that you deal with irritations with your spouse or a coworker? I think absolutely it would. It would change, I think, your attitude. If you could remember, oh, I've, got this in, I've got the $100 million check coming, it would change everything. So Paul puts that in there. He puts, remember, this is your citizenship. This is who you are. You're not of this world. You're of a different world. You're not of this kingdom. You're of a different kingdom, a different way of life with different rules. So he gives you that thought. And then he comes to the reason he wrote this letter is that there's an argument happening in the church between two women, which never happens anymore. People in the church never argue about anything. There's no opinions on what music should sound like or how loud the worship is or how quiet the worship is or if the worship team should have a dress code or um, whether or not the children should get candy in the kid's wing. Because if you're here, we all agree. Yes. <laughs> no, there's some argument happening in the church. And so Paul is writing this letter. So he starts by saying, hey, remember your citizenship. And then he directs his attention to the people that are having an issue. And here's what he says. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. If you are pregnant and you're looking for Bible names for your girl, <laughs> Eodia and Sintiki are, are now on the list. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I love how Paul no matter how small the argument is, we don't get to know what it is, but whether it's trivial or whether it's a big deal, he always brings the major view into the minor. He'll always bring cosmic stuff, the big things into even the tiniest of arguments. He views everything through the cross, essentially. He says, remember the people that are with you that you labored with in the gospel. Yeah, you have differences with each other. But remember the work that you're doing. Remember what, you, what you're doing church for, that people can get to know Jesus. And sometimes you can get so in the trenches that you, you miss that. But this last week, we had 270 kids in this room for five days. And we got to just be super excited with them and talk about Jesus with them. It was our vacation Bible school and get them all screaming and excited and what was amazing is you have probably 80 volunteers to make that happen. And if you get 80 people in a room, there's a lot of things of differing opinions 
of differing backgrounds, and you could disagree on a lot of stuff. But when you're standing in a room talking to kids about Jesus, none of those differing opinions really matter anymore, huh? All that matters is these kids get to know that they have a God who loves them, is excited about them, has got plans for them, he's got hope for them, he's got a life for them, and then all the little things, they can seem to go away because they don't matter with, compared to what you're doing. And then he also brings in whose names are in the book of life. He, he will always bring the big picture stuff until the small stuff. So you're having this, this argument with someone. You could just get so mad with them. You can't even look at them. Yeah, remember, you're going to spend eternity with them. All right, watch out or you're going to share an apartment with them forever. All right? No, he's saying, remember, they're a citizen too. That they've been purchased by God too. The same love and mercy and grace and forgiveness that has been shown to you, show that same love and mercy and forgiveness and grace to them. That's what Jesus would have you do. Their name has been written in the book of life because of Jesus's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. We are called to bestow that upon others as well. Even when we feel like they don't deserve it. Did we deserve what Jesus did for us? That's the lens we view everything from. No, I didn't. Okay, so I can give that to other people and I can trust God to handle it. That's so important, man. No matter what argument you're in, if it's a big thing, it's a tiny thing. Bring the cosmic stuff into your daily arguments. And then Paul, this to me is is the biggest part of the chapter. I believe these are the stabilizers he gives you. This is what he says, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you want your heart and your mind guarded by God in Christ Jesus? Do you want the peace of God to guard your heart and your mind? I totally do. What an offer that he's making right now. So he's, he gives you that. Verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And starting in verse four, he gives you a little list. Do these things and you'll find that peace of God. Do these things and you'll find the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Here's how he starts. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know what rejoice means? It means that thing that brought you joy, reignite it, rediscover it, refind it, remember it. Find joy in it again. Rejoice in the Lord. There's a reason the psalmist says, restore in me the joy of my salvation. I think the further you get away from the day you were saved, the further you can get away from being so joyful of remembering where I was, remembering where God has pulled me from. The further you get away from it, the more it is to be like, oh yeah, I'm saved. I've been, I've been adopted by the king. Oh yeah, no, it's whatever. It's like this. Two months ago, I was taking, um, I don't know if you say taking advantage of, or I was taking for granted. I was taking for granted the ability to walk. 
I've taken for granted the ability to go to my kitchen and do the dishes. I've taken for granted the ability to go up to my kid and pick him up. And then when I crashed and I broke my ankle, now all of a sudden all I can think about is, oh man, I wish I could walk. Oh my gosh, I wish I could go and pick up my kid. I wish I could help my wife. And now that I can walk, it's like, every, dude, I was so stoked to do the dishes. I'm not even joking. Just the fact that I could help my wife with something after weeks of being down, I was like, I'm doing the dishes, babe. And she's like, there's more. And I'm like, okay. You know, I was stoked that the fact that I could walk up to my kid and pick him up. I, but here's the problem. And here's what I know about me. In two months, if I'm being honest, probably two weeks, I'm gonna forget. I'm going to forget the joy of that. But you have to remember it. Like, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm going to print out a sticker of the, my broken ankle, the x-ray, and I'm going to have it on my one wheel. So every time I'm riding, I look at that and I go, that's right. I need to remember that. Because we need to be people who remember. We constantly be people who rejoice in the Lord. We remember where Jesus has brought us from. Where would you be if Jesus had not transformed your life? Where would your marriage be if Jesus hadn't entered it and changed things? Where would your kids be? That's so important for us to constantly come back to and then celebrate. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Celebrate that. Be excited about that. You've been saved by the King. Jesus has redeemed you. Jesus has called you to a higher purpose. He's given you his life, and he wants you to live his life out. Wow! What a thing that he's entrusted to us. That should be something we celebrate and we get excited about, we rejoice in. So that's the first thing he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Says it twice because it's important. Have to remember it. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. If you have um, different translations of the Bible, you know, if you, for me, when I just got saved, I was always like, why are there different translations of the Bible? Like, what does your translation say? Thinking it said something like radically different, you know, like a textbook, how you have version, version one, but then version three has got like the new information that doesn't happen with this. There's not new information added to it. It's set in stone. The different versions are simply this. Paul, when he was in prison, he was writing in Greek. And so brilliant theologians, people who study language, they've translated the Greek to English so that you and I can understand it. So you and I can come together and do a Bible study and talk in English. But the problem is, is sometimes there's words that don't perfectly translate well, but they get the idea. They get the big idea. And this is kind of one of them. Because if, if you have the ESV, it says, let your reasonableness be known. But if you have other versions, you might have gentleness, or you might have meekness, or you might have moderationness, like a bunch of different words, but all kind of meaning essentially the same idea. But it's getting at the same. Here's the idea. What it's saying is we as believers should have an even keeledness, an evenness to our emotions, basically to our victories and to our successes, to our big wins and our big losses, there should be a evenness in how we respond. And here's why. So if you, if you want to get, a, get a, a good example of it, you can go to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, 
you have Jesus has just sent out a bunch of his disciples. And they come back in Luke 10, verse 17. And here's what happens. Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy. The 72, they come back, they're excited. Jesus, we've did something great. Saying, look, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Seems kind of like a downer thing to say, Jesus. Right? Like the, the 72 come back. Jesus, we had this great experience. The demons were even cast out. And Jesus says, don't be excited about that. You're like, well, that's kind of lame, dude. Why can't we be excited about that? Well, here's why. Jesus knows a time is coming when they're not going to be able to cast out the demon. When they're going to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, why, isn't, why can't this one leave? And he's going to say, this one only comes out by prayer and by fasting. That we as believers, we are not supposed to be people who get our significance, our value, what makes us important, what makes us huge from our victories, because there's going to be a time when we fail. There's going to be a time when it doesn't work the same. There's going to be a time when the things that used to bring us joy don't anymore. So Jesus is saying, we're supposed to have this evenness to us. Don't be excited about that. Don't be excited because that thing gave you victory. Be excited because your names are written in the book of life. Have that bigger picture. Be excited about the $100 million check that's coming. If you have your mind on the $100 million check and you're working at Dairy Queen and someone wants to tip you $20, you don't have to go and rub it in the faces of everyone else you work with, huh? Because it's just 20 bucks. It doesn't matter. I have $100 million coming. In that same way, if you're... 1960s Ford Falcon gets beat up and towed, you have $100 million coming your way. No big deal. I got the big check coming my way. Failures hit you a little differently, don't they? If you have your mind on the big prize that's coming, if you have your mind on the big important thing, the thing that really matters, then failures don't rock you. They don't destroy you. They don't eat at you. They don't devastate you. Your disappointments don't rip your heart out like they could otherwise. Believers in Jesus, we're supposed to let our reasonableness be known to everyone, our moderation be known to everyone, have a very evenness in our spirit, because our victory has already been attained by Jesus. Any victory I have on this earth doesn't compare to it, and any failure that I have has been covered by him, and any failure that I experience or disappointment I experience, I've got such a hope coming my way. It doesn't have to rock me. It doesn't have to destroy me. So that's the second stabilizer he gives. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious about anything. Anxiety, I think, comes from the desire to try to control things that you just cannot control. The things that God has not given you authority over, the things that we can spend so much time thinking on that we can't control, whether it be political things, whether it be what the state decides, what is good and what is bad, whether it be 
the mask regulations or whatever, the things that we can't control that can keep us up at night, that can get us in very frustrated and heated conversations with others. It's the stuff that we can't control. So he says, don't be anxious about anything. You give those things to God in everything with prayer and supplication. You can give those things to God and say, God, I'm not in control of those things, but I know the one who's in control of those things. So I'm going to give those things over to you and I'm going to trust you in it. I'm going to trust that you have got your eyes on everything that's happening, that you have a plan, that I don't maybe understand it, but you're working something and I'm going to trust you in it. But here's the really hard part about this verse, if you noticed it. It says, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Well, how do you do that? How do you really do that? Like when things are really, really hard, how do you pray with thanksgiving? Like there are times when it's super easy to pray with thanksgiving, right? There are times when things are just going awesome in your life and it is simple to pray and be thank God, thank you so much for that. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. You just can list all these things that you're so thankful for. But then there are other times when it's really, really hard. Like I think about Mary, like when Mary got told she was pregnant and it's going to be the Messiah, like, wow, there's easy to find something to be thankful for in that. Or even when Mary lost the Messiah as a boy and now she's scared and finding him and she finally finds him. There's something to be thankful about in that, right? And then even when she's at a wedding and it seems to be going catastrophically wrong, they've ran out of wine, the party is over, everything is stopping, she sees Jesus there. Oh, I can be thankful for that. And she knows who Jesus is so much, she could say, Jesus, we've ran out of wine. And when Jesus responds with, what do you want me to do about that? It's not my time yet. She'll just look to the servants and say, do whatever he says, because she knows Jesus can handle it. Jesus is someone that she can always trust. Jesus is someone who always gets it done. When Jesus is present, he's working something like she can just trust in him. It's easy when Jesus is there. It's easy with the hope of what he's going to do to find things to be thankful in. But it's really, really, really hard when Barry's looking up at Jesus and she's watching her child being killed. When she just watched him be beaten and mocked and, and things thrown at him. And she's watching him take his last breath. How do you find something thankful? How do you pray in that moment? Because all you feel in that moment for her, surely, is you feel like, God, what happened to all your promises? God, this is supposed to be very different than what is happening right now. What's going on? Then all it seems like is everything is falling apart, like there's no hope, everything is dark. But here's what Mary in the moment can't see that you and I know, is that she will later on Sunday look back on that day, what is objectively the worst moment of her life, will she'll look back on and at the same time realize that was the most significant, most important moment in all of human history, including my life. That's the moment that Jesus gave his life for everybody else, that Jesus redeemed all who would come to him to the Father, that he'd make access to the king again, that it wouldn't be based on law, but it'd be based on his work and that we can come to him and be freely saved. That's the most important thing. That's the day the revolution began. But in the moment, how can Mary pray with thanksgiving? I think the only way you and I in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of frustration and intense pain, 
can offer up our prayers to God with thanksgiving is you have, you do what Paul does, you bring the cross into everything. And you say, if you could even use that, Jesus, if you could even use the cross for my good, maybe you could even use this for my good. Maybe you can even use this thing right now, like in Genesis chapter 50, where you say what man means for evil, God can use for good for the saving of many lives. Maybe you can even use that for good. And guys, it might not even be in our lifetime that you get to see the good. It might not get to be this week. It might not to be this year. You may not get to see it. But you, you and I can trust that even if you can't see that God is moving, we have a God who's moving. Even if you don't actively see God working, God is working. God has a plan. And he proved that on the cross, that he's doing something even when the people present can't see. And the thing that he's doing is greater than you and I could ever imagine. So those are the shocks that he gives that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then moving on, he gives you and I, the believer, the right thought life, the way that you and I should think, the things that you and I need to be focused on throughout the day. Verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This does not tend to be the default setting of the human mind, to think on these things. I think the default setting is more like whatever is untrue, whatever is unholy, Whatever's unjust, whatever's impure, whatever's ugly, if there's anything of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy, that's what I think on. That tends to be where my brain goes. Kind of negative. But we as a believer, we're, we're not supposed to do that. You ever focus on stuff? You ever look at the news and it just sends your mind into this spiral? And then at the end of your time spiraling out, it hasn't benefited you at all? It hasn't grown you at all. It hasn't increased you in any way. All it's done is made you stressed out, a little bit irritable with your kids and kind of ruined your day. Has anyone felt that? I've been feeling that a lot, all right? We as believers, we're not supposed to be focusing so much of our time and our energy and our mental stress on that stuff. We're supposed to go through this filter. Okay, is what I'm looking at, is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it excellent? Does this thing, is it a true representation of God's beautiful world that he has created? And if not, I probably need to take my mind off of it. I probably need to stop spending, spending so much time focusing on COVID or mass or what policies are, what politics are going on. When it's out of my control, it's probably not worth me dwelling on and spinning out on and stressing out over and, and causing me to be unpresent with what God has called me to be a part of and the relationships and conversations God has called me to be in. The believer is supposed to have control over their thought life, have a filter. That's why Matt so cleverly put together the Cecil Jep for us to remember these. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. That's supposed to be going through our mind. It, am I thinking on those things? If not, it's time to change the channel. Be thinking of something else. 
Verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul gives us another little secret. Paul has been through stuff. Paul is writing in prison and he's writing about, I have been in moments where I have been in need, where I have been lacking. Paul spent a moment as a very well-established Pharisee, probably making a good salary where things were in abundance for him, when things were going really, really well for him. He's experienced both of it. He's known both sides of the spectrum. And in this, what you would arguably say is a very low point of his life, he writes, I've been through it all. And I know this secret that I can go. I can get through all things because of Jesus who strengthens me. Corey Tinboom has this quote that says, sometimes you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. There are times when we're in a valley moment, when we're in a rougher period, a rougher season of our life. And in those times, you draw near to Jesus in a way that you never have before. Your prayer life becomes super active and fruitful. Your relationship with your wife and your kids change because you're drawing Jesus into everything. And it's so good. And, but it's in circumstances when things are really going well that you tend to drift away from that. Sometimes the valleys are so important for you to remember and realize Jesus is what I really need. Jesus is what my family really needs. More than me spending extra time at work so that I can buy that extra cool thing or we can go on that other trip. It's leading my family to know Jesus. That's what I need to be spending my time on. That's what I need to be focused on. At what point are we content? At what point can I say I'm content with what I have? As an American, it's hard to find that. But Paul sitting in prison is saying, I found a way to be content. It's because I think in the low points he's found, when you have nothing, you find Jesus is really all I needed. At verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
So he ends by just thanking them so much for their generosity. When we had 270 kids in here, all playing games, all doing these Bible studies, all doing devotionals, I asked a few of the staff who was here, I was like, hey, close your eyes for just a minute and remember Fruitdale. And that's where we were at before this. Remember being unable to put anything on the walls. Remember that we would get phone calls and be in trouble if any of the kids left any mark anywhere. And then now look at what we have. Because God's people were so generous and God's people wanted to give and God's people knew that God was gonna supply their every need. So I wanna trust God in this and I wanna see him do something great. And here's what's so rad, that when they gave to Paul, they were partnering with him and they knew that Paul's victory is my victory. That the 270 kids that came here and heard about Jesus is your victory because you have trusted God with your finances so that they could come here, so they can come to a lit facility, that they could have running water, that they could have an upstairs and a downstairs full of fun things that would, that, and people that would talk to them about Jesus because you trusted God. That happened. It's rad. We're the luckiest people, I believe, not just in Grants Pass. I believe we're one of the luckiest people in the world to have all of this, to get to do what we do, to get to talk to kids and to families and to people who are hurting about the God who loves them and who wants them and who desires them, who's got plans for them. Jesus's victory is our victory. We get to partner with him. And there's people like Epaphroditus whose partnership looks like getting boots on the ground and being there and going, doing prison ministry for Epaphroditus. There are people whose participation looks like serving in the kids' wing, serving in the middle school group, serving in the high school group, serving with the family ministry, serving in missions. And there are people who their participation is to give what they have and trust God in it. And give knowing that God is going to supply my every need, that God is going to provide for me. And that, yeah, I can, I can hold on to all of my money and, and buy the cool thing and do what I want with it. But I can also trust the king of the universe that he's got a plan for me, that he's doing great things and I want to partner with him in it. So Paul ends with just giving a thank you. And I feel that thankfulness. I feel that gratitude, getting to be a part of Edgewater and getting to talk to kids about Jesus because of your guys' generosity. I'm very thankful to get to be a part of this body with the amazing people that we have. And moving forward this year, as we head into more uncertain times and uncertain waters, please hold on to those stabilizers. Be people who rejoice in the Lord, constantly thinking about where would I be if it wasn't for Jesus? Constantly thinking about that. Be people who are just have an evenness of spirit because you know you have an inheritance coming that's beyond anything of this world, that your failures don't have to completely destroy you and rock you because you have a God who thinks so much of you that he would give his life for you. You must be pretty awesome in his eyes and that in everything you can lift up all your prayers, all your hurts, all your wants, all your needs with thanksgiving to God because you can view everything through the lens of the cross. That if Jesus could even do something through that, maybe he can do something through what's going on in my life right now. So Jesus, we're so thankful to be called your people. We're so thankful to get to partner with you in the work that you're doing in Grants Pass and in this world. Jesus, we pray for all the kids in the kids wing that they would grow up to be young men and women who are on fire for the gospel. 
who raise up their fellow students, who raise the temperature of a room. Lord, we pray for the marriages in this room. God, that you continue to strengthen them against the lies of the enemy who wants to steal and wants to kill and to destroy. And Jesus, I pray for us individually that we will have our eyes fixed on you, the founder and the finisher of our faith, that we will, in all things, think of things that are true and are just and are lovely and are pure and excellent and worthy of praise, that our mind would be on those things and not of the things of this world that can so easily frustrate and spin us out. Jesus, we're thankful to be called your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.